Yo, it's Real Sun Car Hours. Real Sun Car Hours. Another, uh, this is not a bonus episode. This is a no. free episode. <laughs> so follow us at Sun Car Hours on Twitter. Um, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff happening, um, from the Biden, Joe Biden, you ain't black comment. And then, uh, then, yes. you know, uh, another episode of a Karen being a Karen and, uh, another police shooting and protests um in minneapolis so um just, a, just another week in america you guys yeah it's just you know white america just being white america again so yeah that's when, what we'll be talking well, this about this is what happens when they don't have sports right yeah uh so yeah that's what we'll be talking about um follow us on patreon patreon.com slash real sun car hours for bonus content um where we do you know fun stuff theory theory readings uh bonus interviews stuff of that nature um yeah and our rss feed is on podbean our real sun car hours dot podbean dot com uh, we're on spotify itunes is kind of funky so we're st- uh, so far we're just we're just on spotify so um so yeah so you know those of us here who are listening on spotify thank you and if you want bonus content Five dollars a month at patreon.com slash real car hours. This is Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson5 on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter, though I don't know why anyone would want to be on Twitter right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's so um I think the last it's been a while because we have a we recorded yeah. a bonus episode it's been a while since we did a, a free episode and a lot has happened so like so there was the joe biden interview with charlemagne the god in uh on the breakfast club and basically charlemagne was basically like i mean a lot of his questions i think do you know to be fair because um charlemagne like he he made his career just being an asshole and kind of a troll and you know problematic but uh to be I respect him for actually asking uh, yeah. serious questions of Joe Biden. Yeah, he'll ask real questions when he gets like real politicians on, but they always embarrass themselves. Um, yeah, yeah. Which but, I think, yeah, I don't know if it's the politicians themselves or if it's well, Charlemagne's skills it, it, as it an is, interviewer. It's both, and it's also like, you know, this is uh, this is when the white patrician elite, or you know. Kamala Harris have to like descend into the common Negro folk and you know provide some semblance of a convincing performance and of course it's impossible so they always end up saying something ridiculous like uh the infamous Hillary Clinton's hot sauce in her bag <laughs> or and Kamala basically saying that listen, listening she, to Tupac in 1989 which right <laughs> and for those of us for those of us by the way we recorded it we did an episode on tupac and if you pay attention to the episode in 1989 that was two years before he released his first album so no well what it was really was that kamala harris was like deep into the tape trading scene in san francisco so she had gotten the like uh some digital underground like bootlegs where tupac was like rapping during a during a concert it was actually that's what that was all about yeah 
but you people wouldn't listen. Right, right. And so the next one, so the latest one he did with Joe Biden, which I, I thought, like, overall the way he framed his interview was good because he's basically like, hey, look, you know, a lot of black voters, and mostly older black voters, um, you can, like, they kind of helped his campaign, like, in terms of momentum, right? And so he's like, okay, like, black voters kind of helped you out, so it's time for some real demands. Like, what are you going to do for black people? Like, um, what what are you going to offer us? Like, we can't just vote vote for you and get nothing in return. And then Joe Biden was like... Actually, yes, you can, and you're going to. And also, like, he, <laughs> Joe Biden, like... Well, first of all, he said he was endorsed by the NAACP, which is actually a lie. He was endorsed, I think, by... There is like an official within the NAACP, but as someone, I've, I've been in the NAACP before, and their policy is the NAACP is a nonpartisan organization, so as an organization, they don't endorse candidates. But people within the NAACP can endorse people individually, but not on behalf of the organization. So when he said that he had an endorsement from the NAACP, that was false. And even the NAACP came out and said, like, actually, no, we did not endorse them. Someone else in the organization did, but they were not speaking on behalf of the NAACP as a whole. So that was a lie, which is very common to Joe Biden, which is to no. a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, he, well, what you're missing is that he got the endorsement when he was in South Africa being arrested right trying to see nelson mandela while he was in jail some of the naacp people were also there and they were so impressed by his dedication to the black freedom struggle that they gave him a lifetime endorsement so yeah. joe biden is always endorsed by the naacp that's 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 the real truth and and the person who handed him that award was corn pop it's oh, corn yeah. pop yeah corn pop was in the naacp he gave Joe Biden the award. And after the award, he proceeded to touch his blonde, hairy legs at the swimming pool. So. Yeah. Uh, and and so, yeah, so his comment, like, basically, there's, the interview's like 18 minutes long, and he was basically like. Wait, really? It was only 18 minutes? Yeah, it was. Uh, those interviews are usually like an hour. Yeah, it was one of those like kind of Zoom interviews, and Joe Biden was pressed for time, and so uh, the interview was cut short. But like there were like, I, I, we don't have enough time for this episode to go point by point with you know his record on the crime bill. But there's a lot of stuff that Joe Biden said was fishy because he was saying like he, he was obfuscating about a ton of shit that like. Um, you know, oh yeah, I wrote the crime bill, but then he would say, like, actual elements that were in the crime bill he didn't support, even though it was in the crime bill that he wrote. So, so there is that. But toward the end, this is, this is the thing that really um, uh, got Joe Biden in some heat. Um, Joe Biden said, basically, so toward the end of the interview, this is why it was 18 minutes, like, he was, um, he was being cut short, like, Joe Biden was like, hey, you know, <laughs> like, one of his advisors, like, you gotta cut, you have to wrap this up, basically. So, so, uh, Charlemagne was like, hey, you know, don't treat black media like that, blah, 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 and then Joe Biden was like, um, he's as, as like, his sort of final, sort of, uh, clinching line before the interview ended, he said, if you have trouble, um, deciding whether you're going to vote for me or Donald Trump, then you ain't black. And it, 
Peter, wait, Peter, what's uh, your response? <laughs> I have mine. Um, well, I suppose, like, there's an out, which is that I don't have any trouble deciding between voting for either of those people. I'm perfectly secure in my decision to not vote for either of them. So, you know, it isn't... He gives some level of room, but it is more just like... Yeah, I mean, he's... that that The highest level of, like white familiarity is the ability to gatekeep blackness to other black people that's right. that's the, that is like the definition of being too comfortable mm-hmm. and you know on some level it's that was 40 years in the making i mean yeah he, he's people have enabled him and enabled that type of him to have that mentality which has yep. given him a pass to enact you know all sorts of horrendous forms of racism and Somehow he, you know, he somehow somehow he's been able to get through it, and you know now he doesn't even remember any how he got to this point. But he just he probably literally thinks that he's black. Honestly, he probably he probably has convinced himself he's got vitiligo or something. And so, like, I'm glad you mentioned that, like, because that was one of my that was one of my reactions I had was basically that. I mean, first of all, like, okay, before I go on, I want to actually define what blackness is because I think oftentimes when it comes to the race, the common race discourse that it's not just it's not just white liberals who do it. I see a lot of white leftists and white socialists uh, in class reductionist types do this, which is like to kind of reduce blackness as sort of like this vague metaphysical thing. And it's like easy to talk about it in the abstract in the vague and the not and not the concrete so it's like it's it's like blackness is something but it's also nothing at the same time in the way people talk about it but i i like to think of blackness and particularly african-american identity as um an ethnic and national identity like you know the idea of like the imagined community and ethnic and national identity in a sense that like you know, black America is like a nation of people. Like, essentially, we're like a nation of people within a nation. Like, America is like this settler colony nation, and black people are a nation within that nation, essentially. And so, like, when you look at what makes a nation and an ethnic group, like, there's certain ingredients, right? So, um, shared history, ancestry, um, culture, music, food, way of life. And also I would add in like a sense of uh, black consciousness, like that consciousness of like, you know that you're black and it can, that realization can kind of come at any time, either by, you know, how you grow up and your experience or like experiencing real persecution um, because of uh, your identity as being black. So there is like an actual material reality to black identity that is beyond just the metaphysical and the reason why i say that is because um if you look at all the you know sort of ingredients of what it makes what it is to be black joe biden is not that if anything he's part of the identity that's that's responsible for oppressing black people so in that sense like he, he can talk familiar with black people that that but that does not mean he's member of the african-american nation of people and uh, and i think like yeah and when blackness gets 
reduced to this very vague and abstract thing, it makes it very, very easy for someone like Joe Biden to claim that he's more black than people who are actually black, you know, and, and also, and I want to make that clear because if you see black America as like a nation of people, then it would make sense for that nation of people to have political interest in support of the nation of people. So it's like, okay, it's like with reparations, right? Um, with reparations, you're technically repairing a nation, technically. So if you support reparations or the idea of it, then logically you have to accept the premise that black America is a nation because you have to repair the nation, the nation that was damaged by slavery, Jim Crow, all these systematic policies that target a specific nation of people. In the same way, like you're dealing with like, Native Native American people who are nations, right? Like they're Native American nations, right? Yeah. So in 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 that sense, like you can see, even like look look on Wikipedia. If you look on Wikipedia, look up African American. Even Wikipedia says that African Americans are an ethnic group. So yeah. I would like to I would like to uh, bring in somebody who uh, who wrote a pretty good work called Marxism and the National Question which sought to um, work through the relationship of, you know, what they called it back then, national oppression to, you know, class conflict. And this person, um, whose name is Joseph Stalin, you know, situated a nation as such. A nation is a historically constituted, stable community of people formed on the basis of a common language, territory, economic life and psychological makeup manifested in a common culture now Mm -hmm. does don't all those things apply i mean ebonics is its own language Um, yeah 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 so you know from from the marxist perspective it you know black america or new africa as as the different terminologies are thrown around does constitute like a nation in and of itself i also you know, when talking about racism and blackness, like as an experience, I love uh, Baldwin's quote about uh, whiteness is like a frame of mind and blackness is a condition. So, mm. right. Yeah. And uh, I want to also bring up this is something I tweeted um, like earlier today, yesterday, um, that I think applies to, you know, the 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 national question. Um, so I just finished, this is a good book, by the way, um, Black Bourgeoisie by E. Franklin Frazier, um, and the, the subtitle is The Book That, Br- that Brought the Shock of Self-Revelation to Middle-Class Blacks in America. It was written in 1957, but I think it's still relevant today. But basically, um, one thing he pointed out that I, I hadn't realized quite before, but it made sense, especially as I, you know, listening to Malcolm X's speeches, um, black nationalism was actually the language of the black working class and the black masses. So he even said um, the Garvey movement did not attract any support from the imagine uh, from the emerging black bourgeoisie. So like and and also he points out um, uh, in his appeal to the masses of American as well as West Indian Negroes, Garvey in, exhibited a keen understanding of the hurt self-esteem and frustrations of black men in the United States. And then uh, he goes on. This is actually, I think, a really important quote. 
um, he's talking about uh, basically the the black bourgeoisie. He said um, they did not only regard his programs as fantastic, but they did not want to associate with his illiterate and poor black followers, especially since West Indians were prominent in the movement. So, so black nationalism actually i would argue is the language of the black working class and especially like if you go into like any black urban hood um you'll see the red black and green flag right yeah you'll see it like you'll see traces of like some uh language or iteration of black nationalism um and even the idea of black nationalism goes back even further than garvey uh martin delaney who was an african-american abolitionist he was the first one to come up with the phrase africa for africans so even the ideology of like black nationalism actually has its roots in black america in the diaspora so you know and that's one thing i want to mention basically to one define you know black people as a specific national identity but also um I think it's important for like leftists to know that uh, black nationalism is part of the black political milieu. Like it can be synthesized and updated, but it's it's something that actually is organic to the black political struggle. So the way that ties in with Biden is that, yeah, like it seems like I, I think someone in his campaign gave him some sort of pass. Or not even his campaign, but I think there are too many, like, black uh, p- political class types who um, basically gave him a pass. Because he, f- it seemed like he felt comfortable saying that. Like, he, like, it seemed like, you know, he was pissed at Charlemagne well, for yeah. daring to <laughs> demand anything. Well, well, yeah, in his, you in his earlier, one in one of his earlier responses, he basically... When Charlemagne asked him the question, like, shouldn't black people, like, black voters demand something of the African, of the Democratic Party? And he basically was just like, do you know how much black support I got? Do you know how many? I win all black votes all the time for my entire career. 96% of Delaware. Uh, black people love us. And it's even he even was like, and it's not just older black. Younger blacks love me, too. All black people love me. So, yeah, <laughs> it's like he, he he basically was just rejected the framework outright. I mean, this is this is pure like bringing us to heel. Like he, he very yeah. much is yeah. asserting his dominance and all that stuff. And it's like, honestly, honestly, that's like the most forthright, honestly, like any Democratic um nominee has been about that topic in recent memory i mean they like it's almost refreshing that he doesn't do all the like uh you know bromides and like yes we must listen and we must lift Hmm. up and hold these things and center them and all these other vague verbs that don't connote any sense of tangible or decisive action just like yes we understand we listen we've heard you which is like it really gets to the point where like if you've done all this hearing, you've done all this listening, and you've done all this acknowledging, and you haven't actually done anything about the problem, that means you have less excuse. That means it's like almost unforgivable that you know the problem 
and you're like intentionally not doing anything about it because you know it would be too hard for you to do anything about so yeah and i think also to that point like it's basically like that whole language of like we're listening to black people we acknowledge your lives like this is actually uh uh let me let me, let me bring up this uh there's a good um uh, tweet that I retweeted. Um, I don't know the person who said it. Uh, the the person who tweeted it, Risk uh, Riskway, I think. Uh, I I can't uh, pronounce yeah. the name. Yeah. Uh, but they said like this is a PSA from a comrade on Facebook, and I think this actually applies to the um, I would say overall sense of paternalism because this is, I think this is this is what really I think like piss a lot of black people off about that about what Biden said. Is that it's basically white liberal paternalism toward black people. And so it's like basically white liberals, like white conservatives don't give a shit about black people. Like they're very open about that because white conservatives in the Republican Party is fundamentally animated by white nationalism. So they don't have to pretend to even care about black people because like black people as a group are not really part of their constituency. And a lot of their politics is animated by, especially now, anti-black racism bigotry and outright xenophobia right whereas white liberals in the democratic party um a lot of their politics is like paying lip service to this idea of like multiculturalism liberal representation representation matters uh inclusion diversity right all of which are like are equally as vague but offered like no specific plan of action to address the material conditions of black america so this is the um the tweet uh i, I guess someone said it on facebook but uh so uh, riskways uh, screenshotted it and they said um white liberals leftists there's not really a, dif- a difference poems murals long emotional diatribes writing black lives matter a, a hundred times all of that is for you it doesn't bring us any closer to actually having the power to prevent these things from happening. Offer resources and skills to aid us in revolution or shut the fuck up. If you're not doing that, or if you wouldn't catch a body for my people, you're only sharing pictures sharing pictures and videos and writing all of this BS because you're a sadist. I, I would respect you more if you came out and said that. And I, I think that's a great way to put it because I do think like, it's a similar kind of language that like white liberals speak when it comes to black people. It's like they don't offer any specific tangible solutions because the the actual specific tangible solutions that would be required to fix the problems that face black America would require like revolutionary change that liberals don't want. So what they do have to do is like, yes, we hear you hashtag black lives matter. Yes. Queen. Uh, we listen to Beyonce and Ta-Nehisi Coates and like we're reading all the right books and here's a poem for black people and like I've watched the video and it's like all this like this sort of vague performative shit that like offers nothing and and with Biden it's like he doesn't even care about those (laughs) those bromides he's just like listen you negroes if you don't vote for me you ain't black Get in line, get in line. Right. Though, though I will say, um, yeah, I mean, liberals don't have any resources to aid in revolution, really. So, no, I don't know. There was a time when, like, you know, like, black, like, the Black Panthers fundraised for the New York 23 at, like, uh, Leonard Bernstein's house and stuff. I mean, there, but that, you know, back in the day, but now it is, like, yeah, 
what I mean what are they gonna like what resources for revolution could they even offer grants you know and the white <laughs> left i mean right. i mean i sometimes i i do think that people like overestimate like the white left's ability to affect any change at all so you know what are they like you right. know youtube yeah. documentaries i mean like <laughs> i like the whole situation is screwed and so it is like yeah they're you have like basically a defenseless people and their allies are just like completely, you know, in the wilderness, just, um, you know, on drugs all the time. So yeah, they're not going to be much use. Um, I do think like there is some level, I mean, certainly that like paternalistic, you know, voyeuristic thing is, uh, is, you know, operating, but it is very much like, I don't know if it's always the dominant thing on the left, so to speak, but it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't change the fact that, like, that's definitely a phenomenon. Right, yeah, and they they put white liberals and leftists together, and, like, you know, I think what you're getting at is that, like, you know, it, it helps to make that distinction between yeah. white leftists who are actual leftists versus just straight-up mainstream, white mainstream liberals. Um, wow. yeah. I mean, we because the other thing is like liberalism doesn't have to be on the left at all. Like, no, right. That right. that's some that's like a particularly American phenomenon where we've associated liberal with left, but it, that that's not true. Like historically or around the world, like there are many places like Australia, for example, where like the Liberal Party is the center is the right wing party. You know, of course, every party in Australia is a right wing party, but it's it's not the furthest. Right. It's, there's like a party that's to the left of the Liberal Party or like in the UK, like the Liberal Democrats. It's like liberalism. You can com- we just need to completely divorce ourselves from it. Right. There- right. And actually, that's a good segue into um, I, like these recent um, like, again, the, these these things happened back to back. Right. So first there was a Joe Biden, you ain't black comment. And then after that came, um, I think it was a couple of days. So there was this video of, um, it was taken in New York City Central Park. I guess this place called the Ramble. So, so there was a white woman and a and a and a black guy. So, white woman's name is Amy Cooper. Black guy's name is Christian Cooper. So the video was taken by Christian Cooper. And so he sees Amy Cooper with her dog in the park without a leash. So apparently the rules stipulate that, like, okay, if you walk in your dog, uh, you need to have a leash. I want I want to pause here and say, like, if you really want to see white entitlement, particularly white liberal entitlement, you should look at how white people interact with animals versus how they treat black people. This is a really good example of this because I think like 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 because even some of the responses to this to this situation when people are like, oh my god, I feel so bad for the dog. Um, <laughs> so what happened is the, the Christian was like, um, hey, uh, you know, you need to put uh, a leash on your dog. It's the rules. Um, and he he was bird watching apparently. This happened like sometime in the morning. And she was like, just got in his face like, why are you filming me? Blah blah blah. blah. And then and then. Um, the 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 video's like a minute long and she calls the cops and she says there's an african-american man threatening me and my dog blah 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 and her voice like she gets more and more like irate like the tone of her voice it makes it it seems like she sounds like she's in like immediate danger like imminent danger like there's like yeah. like 
Yeah, and so, um, anyway, the video goes viral, and people are like, you know, there's been this whole debate about like whether you should say Karen and blah blah blah, like you know, but you can so say whatever you want, right? But she is Amy Cooper is like has become um, the latest example of uh, Karen, like a very vindictive That's... white woman. Yeah. Defending white space from uh, troublesome black I, people. I didn't. I didn't realize that it was like actually she who was like breaking the law, and you know, yes, this insolent black man dared to point it out. Yeah. Oh. And if you think about like who even would be in Central Park at this time, like right. at this point, like who is who is even allowed to live mm-hmm. in the Upper West Side? You know. Right. It is like. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that you know any well, yeah any interaction she's ever had with a black person that isn't like someone on the subway doing tricks is like yeah terrifying for her and i want to i want i mentioned the animal and i i want to uh kind of tie this in because um like i think there's something to be said about like white people white space and animals and if you listen to what she said about like this african-american man this evil black man is threatening me and my dog so it's not just her but it's like the dog is a, is, a, is on an equal level as her it's like the dog is like a tiny white person basically the desert it's like basically the dog is a tiny white person who barks um and so it's like my space as a white person is like i'm white my white womanhood my dog who's also a fellow white person and this space which is like i've somehow claimed this space for whiteness and so any black person who interrupts that space i'm like it's just like oh my god how dare you like there's something very very territorial about whiteness and when that territory is is somehow interrupted by you know any sort of black uh confidence or or anything or any sense of expression um is met with uh in this particularly in this case um access to law enforcement in the hand of the police state to enforce white space and i wanted to mention the dog because i think particularly with like white like well-off white liberals like this this type that we're talking about amy cooper by the way so she so once the video went viral um so her dog got taken away and she got fired from her job and she she, she was she, a, wait animal <laughs> control came for her right uh, she was the that, VP. that is that is a fate worse than death for someone like that exactly exactly that's why i say like in this scenario the dog is like a fellow white person like, the dog is not an animal, it's a fellow white person. So, in that sense, it's like, okay, the dog's life is worth more than the life of a black person. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, like, I, it's not just me, it's my dog. The dog is a is a tiny little white person. That's why, like, I treat the dog like like me. And, like, but black people, oh my god, like, they're less than the dog. Like, so it's not even just, yeah, I don't even think it's like white people liking animals per se. But it's like, the whole uh, psychology of whiteness and the territoriality wow. of whiteness extends to the dog. Well, white people fetishize animals because they know they've created such a shitty society where everyone treats human beings like crap. So they project all their, you know, what wants and desires onto the animal to distract them and to justify their misanthropy because they just they apparently don't know how to like live with each other, I guess. I've always thought it to be extremely weird and extremely confusing. Like you can have a pet 
and you can love the pet and you don't have to be like i just wish that all humans were dogs and i just like i just love animals like that are my slaves and don't ever get to talk back to me and those are the animals that i love you know and i love them more than i love people i guess because people well now they can't be slaves and they do talk back and so yeah like people are actual humans with self-determination and how how dare they like that sense of like any sort of like black self-determination and in this case it's like hey just a black dude is like reminding her of the rules it's like how dare you you have violated my white space which includes my dog i think there is an article actually that that uh i think it was written by um naira burton but basically i mean people have pointed this out i think that um you know the the these kinds of calls like it's it's um hold on oh here we go yeah uh i think it was yeah, Nyla Burton. The article is Amy Cooper and Protecting White Spaces. Um, and yeah, like it, it's and and the spaces extend not just to parks, but also like Starbucks, banks, drugstores, delis, university common rooms. Um, there is actually OK. Yeah. Elijah Anderson's 2015 paper, The White Space. And this is a I'm, I'm quoting from uh, the Nyla Burton article. Um, she Uh, said uh so he writes that such spaces reinforce a normative sensibility in settings in which black people are typically absent not expected or marginalized when present in turn blacks often refer to to such settings colloquially as the white space a perceptual category and they typically approach that space with care um and so it's like if you you can connect the white space to settler colonialism Right, like yeah. if white, yeah, like if whiteness is a settler colonial identity, then wow. it could ex- extend to space. Well, I mean, when you said territoriality, you're exactly right in that. Like, yes, there is this constant like awareness of turf. Like, yes, yeah. being white on this continent requires constant vigilance because, on mm-hmm. some level, you're aware of like who you are, why you're here, that you're really not supposed to be here, right. and that. Uh, the only way your future and existence is secure is through violence. Right. Um, like, I was thinking about, yeah, I mean, like, Fanon's situation of colonialism is pure violence. And I was thinking about, like, how, yeah, America really doesn't even have, like, some basis of sovereignty that is, like, popular. like it, Or, like, as a right. nation, you know. Right, right. In the same sense. I mean, it is not really... I mean, yeah, I mean, black... America is more of a nation than uh than the United States of America really because but because there's no actual like social ties or framework on which like the you know sovereignty of the government can rest so it is really just maintained America's sovereignty really is just maintained through pure economic or you know pure military force right right yeah and it has to yeah and it's also like within that white territorial territorial mindset i think there's also the subconscious knowledge that they know that this this land was taken unfairly to an extent so their fear is that like okay um the biggest threat to white territoriality is um uprisings by native americans or black people and like i'll I'll recommend again the apocalypse of settler colonialism by gerald horn because he kind of he digs into this historically and basically it's like it's like yeah like it's it's i think you know within the white american consciousness and and the you know it's political id it's like okay we constantly have to be vigilant to guard white space 
against black people and native people because they got that land at and and it's also like they got that land at the expense of black and indigenous people so it's like they have to be extra vigilant against black and indigenous people because they're they got the land through exploiting us essentially yeah i mean but it isn't necessarily like a direct you know conscious phenomenon as because we're like three or four orders removed from that but what maintains is just like yeah the sense of like private property just the the and also just the need for there always to be some fear like they're they're always you always have to be on the lookout um they're they're just like nothing can ever be okay despite you know living in the quote-unquote greatest country in the world where you have so much freedom you're like you know drowning in it but somehow even with all that freedom still you have to be in like fight or flight mode a hundred percent of the time because you just never know what can happen because you know this is not a place that particularly values life which is you know as we've just seen over the past two months and speaking of not valuing valuing life um george floyd in minneapolis was i mean i didn't i didn't bother to watch the video because i knew enough about it that's like i mean it's very similar to the eric garner thing because on the video he said i can't breathe and there is a cop like basically having their knees on his neck and he's being pinned to the ground unarmed i mean he was basically subdued already and so the guy was saying i can't breathe and then he later died so this is in minneapolis and uh i i do, do want to share um what do you even call that an officer involved strangling it's just <laughs> just at this point it's just like it's you know almost cold-blooded murder i i do want to share this is billboard article i thought it was interesting um uh george the headline is george floyd was a member of houston's legendary screwed up click in the 90s so like you know george floyd had an actual like you know um music uh career and even um christian cooper i think he uh i think he was uh, um he's a uh a comic book like artist i think um so yeah so it's just like yeah um i i wanted because i didn't i didn't know this about george floyd that he was um uh so i guess i guess like he had um uh, i guess in the click i guess they had a freestyle so it says their efforts featured familiar songs fun through the screwed and chopped filter as well as some original fee styles from the large extended suc family which included floyd so floyd was known as big floyd among other well-known members such as big mo lil flip big poop big pokey pat pat and affiliates lil troy and ugk so like he was involved in the 90s hip-hop scene in houston uh which i thought was you know interesting but it's like you know this is another case of a black person just just basically being you know either humiliated accosted or just straight up killed by law enforcement and white white racism and and in minneapolis which uh yeah is supposed to be super progressive but you know clearly has a history of this you know it's one of the um it, actually i was on uh k swiftly's twitch stream and uh, she's in minneapolis and she was pointing out that you know, it's one of the most unequal cities and deeply segregated. Yeah, yeah there's oh, this I'm book. Sure. Re- uh, I would recommend reading Evicted by Matthew Desmond. And he really digs into this about, like, housing. Like, 
racial inequality through housing in Minneapolis and like is very, very stark. Um, right now, as we speak, we're recording this May 27th, 2020, and uh, there's people are already protesting in Minneapolis and people been breaking windows of cop cars in the police department. Um, but getting it in, I mean, yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> They're gonna tear gas you anyway. I mean, they wouldn't let anyone protest right now, so uh, yeah. yeah, get get it in. And everyone's wearing, you know, um, face masks, uh, both for health reasons and obviously, like, I mean, they almost have a dual purpose. At the, yeah. They, yeah, they have a dual purpose at this point. Um, but like, I, you know, we were talking about this before we recorded that a lot of the reactions are the same. And it almost sounds like a repeat of 2014. Like, people are saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, enough is enough. I think I've noticed, oh. like... Yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, well, I mean, nothing ever... Like, the movement never, like, matured beyond, like, a media campaign, really. I yeah. Mean, it, I mean, it never really was able to, you know, get its... Tr- sink its teeth in and, like, become an institutional presence or anything like that. Yeah. Have, like, a longer view of history. And so, yeah, I, I understand that. Then it's all the celebrities who are like, oh, shit, we're doing this again? You know, yeah, like God, you know, and then like, oh, I can't believe we still have to. Why? I don't know why you wouldn't be able to believe that we're still doing this when nothing changed. But, you know, yeah, it's I I mean, no, like nobody's obviously Trump's not going to do anything. But, you know, you think Biden would do anything? No, I mean, no, nobody's gonna, nobody's going to do anything. Trump tweeted something about like, oh, we're going to investigate the death of george floyd but it's like i mean you know we've yeah, heard yes, that with, shit with from... the trump department of justice right right okay, okay. yeah yeah we're totally gonna get something from that yeah i mean and um you know I, w- I was thinking and it's like you know when it comes to like black lives matter and like it's, it's hard to i wouldn't say black lives matter was really um a movement I also want to mention, I forgot, like, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, who was a healthcare worker who was just fucking shot in her home in Louisville in March. Like, you know, there was, she was shot multiple times. So it's like, you know, we talked about Ahmad Arbery, now it's Breonna, uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and then, you know, the, the case of, uh, I mean, Christian Cooper, he didn't die, thankfully, but like, you know, her, Amy Cooper calling the cops on him was like, damn basically a fucking death threat so it's like okay we're seeing the same like uh sort of like the same like oh say this person's name and remember who they are and i get i get it like okay you want to humanize a person right okay fine but like these sort of performative social media exercises of like acknowledging that black people exist is not going to bring back black people from death or prevent the death from happening in the first place so well, the, it's... yeah, and the other thing that always kind of bugged me about it is like it's like oh you know be like oh this person was a hero or a martyr or something like that when like they didn't ask for any of that it's not like no. they signed up to die for this I mean it really like they were targeted and killed and you know they let you know these people led ordinary lives they they were just regular people who ended up in you know a certain situation with you know. A cop who I guess said like, 
you know, taken an extra Adderall that day, so he was feeling super aggro or something. And, you know, <laughs> it's not, like, like it, it feels, I don't know, I, I don't like the idea that, you know, this is, this is a thing, like, it's some sort of heroic act when it's, I mean, I understand the importance of, like, making the death significant, but... I, I don't know. It seems like a rhetorical trap, and I don't necessarily know how to get out of it. I mean, like, it it kind of reminds me of... I mean, I don't, I don't know if you and I are becoming or already are Afro-pessimists, but I do think, like, instances like these... I think and, prove the overall Afro pessimist point. I mean, which is like, I mean, in the near term, I'm an Afro pessimist in right. the sense of like, I don't believe anything will qualitatively change in the system we have now. It's it comes, it almost becomes a tautology at that point. But it is like, yeah, right. there's no there's no point in appealing to any of the people in power to change any of this stuff, really. Yeah, and also. Um, like, I mean, two things, like, you know, it, it, like, these sorts of same reactions, like, these attempts to humanize black people basically reinforce the notion that blackness is social death, in the sense that black people are only relevant when we die. So it's like, whatever humanity we had that existed before, before black people got shot, before Breonna Taylor was killed, before George Floyd was killed, before Christian Cooper got you know almost killed by a white woman in in central park um these people are like they're normal people like everybody else and living normal lives and i'm pretty like like you said like they didn't really ask to be this this face of of uh black lives matter or like um and it's like you know it's like there's no human like black people aren't seen as human until like we are abused or killed by the system anything else beforehand it's like our humanity is not even recognized like we we don't even exist as a people which is why i wanted to define african americans as an ethnic group because it's a way of like as like there is a peoplehood that's there but because we talk about blackness and this vague abstract shit it's like okay we in that sense we don't exist but we only exist socially when you know police bullets are riddling our bodies um but i do think like i was thinking about this um like just to um thinking of like ways forward not like quite like a 10 point plan and specifically but like how to you know sort of find a way out of this morass and i was thinking that i do think that in the same way that the United States should relearn the language of cl- uh, class struggle for progressive and you know socialist change, like you have to relearn the language of class struggle. I think black people should relearn the language of black nat- black nationalism, um, and and so like stuff like Black Lives Matter, I think should be about like okay, how about black power? Because Black Lives Matter and that kind of rhetoric. All it does is, like, look to the morality of white America for salvation. It's like black people can only become human when we appeal to the morality of white America in order to achieve salvation. Which I don't think that's how, that's not how, 
liberation or achieving your humanity works like you have to assert it and take it like you have to it's it you have to you know take power in whatever way you can and you have to assert it because like i'm black i'm human i don't need white america to acknowledge my humanity quote unquote i don't have to appeal to them to acknowledge my humanity because my humanity is self-evident the issue is living under a society in which like there's constant systematic humiliation degradation and and death because of what i because of what i look like because of my nationhood like that's the problem and i think like you know I, i guess the rhetorically or or whatever or politically i think we have to relearn that language of black nationalism as a way to move forward because i think because all these like sort of moral appeals to white liberal salvation like it just doesn't work but i do think that what has worked historically is some form of nationalism and class struggle and i think like that language has to be relearned and that's why i brought up the quote from e franklin fraser because black nationalism like there is a class element to it in the sense of like you're appealing to the heart of the black masses and to affect revolutionary change you have to tap into that yeah so the other i mean the other thing that's that's definitely true i you know i i think in the post blm era i i don't see any other way forward than that but right. the other thing that is like, even in the civil rights era, it was like white liberals still had this sort of patriotic belief in like the goodness of America and that America could be improved, right. or whatever, you know. And also, it didn't. Also, the Soviet Union was running mad propaganda about you know the reality of apartheid in the South, um, which which yeah didn't look good. Didn't look good for all the uh, African you know liberation movements that we wanted to co-opt um you know but the point is that now like that vision doesn't exist among the white ruling class like they are like like the shingles are starting to fall off the structure and you know white people like the white ruling class is not going to be in any mood to be giving to be doing black people any favors anytime soon i mean that's just like as the empire like faces like the inevitable decline like they're going you know the ruling class is going to you know look more towards retrenchment than it is you know the idea of like yeah well you know let's let's improve ourselves like no like there's there's no improving going on so yeah i mean just from a you know sort of purely practical real politic sort of outlook it's like yeah look, trying to appeal to their conscience or whatever is uh is is not is going to work even less than it did before because right right that's that's just not how anyone's in the mood really and also <laughs> wait i'll i'll mention q q q i mean this is that's what that biden interview was really about right yeah yeah because i mean like also there there are some weird should I share these problematic tweets? I mean, they're just like, oh, fuck it, I'll share them. <laughs> yeah, then we can transition to other problematic tweets from Blue Checks. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, because like... I do want to get that off. Cause... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, someone, uh, Tara, Tara Dublin, something, um, tweeted 
Speaking as a single white woman, if I encountered no. Christian Cooper in the ramble, I'd use my phone to get his number, not no. call the cops. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. And she also had like the brown and black fist emoji. Oh, and, <laughs> and then um, Jill Filipovich said, uh, so Christian Cooper is a snack and a nerd and not at all, at all intimidating. I'm going to read that again because that, that first part, <laughs> considering the context of what happened, there is something just so, just blatantly just, ugh. So Christian Cooper is a snack and a nerd and not at all intimidating, which makes this whole story all the more egregious. But even if a person does But, he, but if he were intimidating, then... <laughs> She says, you know, she does say, but even if a person does physically fit your idea of scary, you still don't get to call the cops on an innocent man who didn't do anything wrong. Okay, so, like, at least the last part, like, she kind of, like, somewhat redeemed herself. But the first part is, like, look, if, if you there's, find him attractive, fine. But, like, you don't need to fucking tweet well, it. Well, it's just, like, there's, like, yeah, this, that's, like, the type of, you know, I don't, I don't care. There's, I mean, they brought it up, so we have to talk about it. But right. it's, like... Yeah, there's, like, the kind of white woman who, like, believes that, like, her horniness has, like, salvation potential. Like, they're going to exactly. save America right. through their thirst. Because, right. like, I don't know, I guess they believe, like, you know, they're, you know, they, yeah, they're, they, their uh, reproductive powers have, like, that level of, like, civilizing potential or something. It, and so that's why they, like, fetishize the like tortured black man and it i mean this really goes like like this was the whole thing in the south right is that you have like the you know paranoid elegant you know uh chivalrous white gentleman who is like trying to protect the fragility of white womanhood and meanwhile like you know the those same white women are like you know going being pursuing like black men pretty aggressively and then like yeah, then they get caught, and then it turns around, and then the black guy gets hanged, right? That happened, you know, too many times to count. Right. I mean, not just in the South, you know, all over. Because there was just, like, just, like, why like why would you have to make it about... I mean, that's... Yeah, it's it's white. It's very white, and it's like, why would you have to make it about your vagina? Like, right, right. Like, and it's, yeah, and it's and also like the the context of this because like the other element is that like Amy Cooper, a white woman, also uh, Nyla Burton also pointed out that she's a liberal. She's not a Trump supporter because some people were saying like, oh, maybe Amy Cooper's a Trump supporter. Actually, she's a Democrat. In the Upper West Side. Come on. Right, right, and in that situation, white womanhood was weaponized against Christian Cooper, right? Because she used her white woman tears on that call to basically make up a lie in order to put his basically putting his life in danger right so like white womanhood was weaponized in a very specific way against black life specifically black male life but black life and then it's like okay like that's that's the really shitty part of it right then it's like oh okay these white liberal feminists who think they're doing justice is are like I'm going to use my superiority as a white woman and perform thirst in order to achieve justice for a black person. It's like, well, neither respond. Like, I mean, the, the, the other, like, it's, 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 yeah, like there's no black 
liberation that like, comes through white like, flesh. Like that's the kind of shit that they get mad at men for doing all the time. Not to be like that, but it is. I mean, it is literally like taking something and then making taking like you know an objectively bad like situation then trying to make it about your dick i mean that's it's like the exact same thing right like 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 why would you ever think that is an appropriate sentiment right to share and and also in the the aftermath of somebody of this stuff like right and also like you know if 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 they happen to think like oh christian cooper's an attractive dude Okay, that's fine, but just keep it to yourself. You don't have to like make like I think the, the thing that just irks me about it is like they're using a kind of performative thirst for like political liberation for and think that they're doing a good right. That's such a cursed phrase. <laughs> I mean, it's it performative it's, in the it's sense not that not like, even real thirst. It's right. It's performative in the sense that like they have to publicize their thirst for a black man and they think they're doing some form of justice. Right. And it's like, and, and it, it ties what it does. It ties black liberation through desire for white flesh. Like, I think like, that's what it reinforces. Like, okay, the only way that black people can get, uh, get through, get, get get liberation or any form of justice is through some form of desire for white flesh. And so it's like, these women are acting like, I'm doing him a favor by announcing how attracted I am to him in order to do him justice. But it's like, you don't have to say that. And like, also again, it reinforces this notion that black liberation has to come through white flesh. And this is not like a comment on interracial dating. People want to like, look, if people want to fuck whoever they want, fine. But it's like, it doesn't have to be like trying to turn it into some sort of statement of like yeah the way i'm in solidarity with black people is like i'm so uh, fucking horny for black men like that's not solidarity you just find no, out you have fetishization it's fetishizing if you find them attractive that's fine but you don't have to make it into a, a larger political statement like it's not something that like helps black people in a situation uh-huh. if anything it's like and what's funny is that like i think what they're doing is like again it's just sort of like performative white liberal humanizing of blackness that actually just like is winds up becoming further dehumanizing because it attaches blackness to any sort of like desire for whiteness like because it, 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 it yeah. yeah it always it always comes back to white people i guess, I guess the charitable interpretation is just that you know they've been cor- everyone gets super horny during quarantine so yeah it just, yeah it just kind of came out because that's Honestly, honestly, those kinds of people should know like anyone with a salon column should know better than to than to tweet something like that but um speaking of speaking of you know people with salon columns and blue checks and new york media jobs should should know better um this sort of you know and admittedly this is a very minor controversy in the grand scheme of things and is probably already out of the out of the discourse news cycle but i found it very interesting um Gia Tolentino, who is a writer for The New Yorker um, and has a published book of essays and someone who like, you know, I'll occasionally read her stuff because she's like, she is like kind of, she is like The New Yorker's like token millennial yeah. who talks about like millennial stuff. So I'm curious, like, you know, or like when they want to talk about late capitalism, she's like the one person on The New Yorker masthead who knows what late capitalism means you know so is yeah so, she's ba- yeah she's basically like millennial angst as a result yeah, of late capitalism but, basically but like that I've, kind of voice it's not as if like 
I feel like my life would have been materially deprived if I had never read anything she wrote. Just, but, you know, she's not terrible. But, um, apropos of nothing, as far as I can discern, she wrote a blog post about, I guess, I guess the uh, Tumblr cancel culture crowd had, you know, gotten a smell of flesh. And so they were about to descend on her and she thought she could head them off on the path by exposing um, the uh, criminal case her parents went through where, you know, it turns out her parents are the kinds of people who import labor from the Philippines to, you know, at exorbitant prices to, I guess, teach in poor American public schools. And apparently, sometimes they do this without actually having a job lined up at the other end. And, um, you know, then the people that they really screwed over have no choice but to go to the government. And then the government finds out. And, you know, admittedly, 2003 or whatever, there is very much a... uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get too much into the case itself. Because, I, you know, I I don't... A lot of terrible shit is legal. A lot of... You know, there's, you know, there's like a pretty broad definition of human trafficking, honestly. Yeah. But, you know, the more instructive thing was that upon this, uh, upon, upon her, this self-own, um, you know, all, all your favorite, if assuming you have any favorites because you're brain poisoned like us, all your, fa- all your favorite media people. <laughs> on Twitter, immediately jumped in to say solidarity, solidarity, and you know I'm so sorry, and I'm here for you, and all this stuff. And it, it was like, it was it was pretty shocking. I mean, and not just not just like the libs, but I mean people, you know, pretty we understood to be pretty solidly on the left were like, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I so yeah, I read the blog. I and and. You know, I don't want to go too much into the, um, you know, the specific facts of the case because I think like my instant reaction was honestly less about Gia and her specific family and her specific case and Gia correcting their inaccuracies because, like, you know, I I think to be fair, she has a right to correct any inaccuracies about her family that are publicized so i think that's fair but but they weren't publicized right and and here's the thing is that like my my uh, my thing is like okay I'll, I'll, i'll backtrack and contextualize so when i went to guantanamo in june of 2013 i noticed at the base like there were a lot of filipino and foreign workers and who were working at the base which i thought was like interesting i'd never like it never crossed my mind like oh i didn't know that there were foreign workers here like why is that um and i remember you know talking to people about it and then i did some further reading and turns out like there is a huge phenomenon of the u.s basically trafficking labor from essentially global south countries like the philippines to work on u.s military bases do stuff like construction base maintenance and stuff like that but usually like they suffer abuses like you know really shitty wages um exploitation uh, and i think you know to some extent like you know sexual uh i think sexual abuse like so like actual real serious labor violations and and it's often preyed on people who are coming from 
poor, desperate countries. So um, when I given and I remember I wrote a story about this for Truth Out like in 2013. And so and also one of the sources I looked at was actually a um, investigative story published in The New Yorker, which is where Gia Tolentino works. So given that, like, I don't know all the details of, of labor trafficking, but even when I read her response, like, there were things that just felt fishy to me that, like, even, like, let's say, specific, one of the things that makes cases like these really difficult to prove, whether they're legal or illegal, it, are the layers of subcontracting in, like, that, that chain of from when uh, they are, you know, recruited from... A country like the Philippines to when they wind up uh, working at a U.S. military base or even in, in Gulf countries like in, in, the, yeah. uh, the, in the Persian Gulf. And so um, a Sana Saeed friend of mine who I, I – I, uh, she's a really solid journalist, but she tweeted out. She said, I see human trafficking was being minimized by journalists on Twitter today. Cool. And like I thought that was a good <laughs> response because that, that was – that's what stunned me. It wasn't so much Gia – you know, saying like, hey, look, this is like, these these are inaccurate about my family, blah, blah, blah. What shocked me is that like the response from journalists whose job is to report on these issues, like the instant response was to defend Gia and not look into the larger yeah. issue of labor tra- trafficking, particularly in the Philippines and around the world, because that is a real issue, regardless of it. And let's assume, I'm going to assume for the sake of argument, let's assume everything that Gia is saying is true about her family. That does not negate the reality of labor tra- trafficking, particularly of Filipino migrant workers. Um, I think it's Esha. Hold on, Esha Legal. Um, has a, she had a really good thread where she explains like, I mean, she kind of questioned the details of the case, but she she also did say like she in- includes other sources on like how you know teachers are trafficked and all this like kind of really j- yeah. just shady shit that like that should be. <laughs> talked about more rather than just like yeah i mean the thing that really got me the reason i i even want to talk about it is because yeah like you i mean you know we have and i guess this is extraordinary amongst the intelligentsia of the united states but we have an awareness of things like structural underdevelopment is specifically and also the legacy of u.s fucking imperialism like, right. like, do, like, do, do, do these fucking blue checks even understand that the Philippines was literally a U.S. colony from yeah. 1901 to 1945, where we did a counterinsurgency that killed like a ninth of the population or something like that? Yep. I mean, do they understand that literally, like, the biggest export of the Philippines is labor? Like, it is a labor colony. Like, that yeah. is its role mm-hmm. in the global economy right now. And yeah. so. You know, when I when I read, I was reading it, and when I saw like, oh yeah, my parents like arranged to bring teachers over from the Philippines. And I was like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> They're cat. I mean, and the yeah, thing- yeah. There were there were like, and and uh, sorry to cut you off, but like, there were things even in Gia's defense that raised some flags. That that's what got me off. It's like there is enough things in what she said that like raise some flags that like anyone with some kind of critical eye should have bothered to look into more yeah i mean and it's like well one thing that i think is particularly heinous is that like 
you know, someone who I guess is some sort of self-appointed spokesperson of the immigrant struggle, like their family is directly profiting off that exploitation. I mean, that's so it's so, you know, messed up. It's so perverted to to like to do to to assert yourself as someone who's like like your family is part of the problem and it doesn't matter how legal it is i mean like that's not the point because right. because right. like yes okay yeah ice doesn't give a shit about like you know filipino teachers being exploited they give a shit when like somebody's you know fucking up and then they have to pay attention to it right but you know there's no way like like, like, I saw some people try to, like, minimize, like, exactly how terrible the conditions were. Yeah. yeah. You know, or, mm-hmm. like, you know, she, even Gio's like, no, there's no way all of that's true. I don't, I'm not going to speculate specifically what is or isn't true, but here's what I will say, is that the only way, like, that practice is po- is profitable of, you know, bringing people across the world to teach in McAllen, Texas, which is one of the poorest cities in the country if not the poorest city in the country, or um, Trunan did an actual, like, sh- focus on this, you know, where they actually acknowledge, like, the structural factors. And, you know, the same phenomenon happens in Baltimore, right? It's like, yeah, these these places that, like, I guess Teach for America wasn't doing a good enough job, so this is, this is what they have to do now. And it is, like, yeah, hyper-exploitation. And, the, and this, is, this is the kind of thing where it's, like, if the left can't, if that's not their instinctive reaction, if they can't understand that pattern, and if they can't, you know, understand how this is situated in that framework, and their thing is just like, oh, no, this is just, you know, some sort of misunderstanding. It's like, like, right. this is, this is, this is the thing that makes me third world is this is the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, there's no hope for America. If these people whose job it is to know better can't figure this out, like, then yeah, it's like yeah, we're yeah, we're screwed. So I want to bring this up. So I just looked up the article I, I wrote, and like I I did a story on this. God damn it. Um. So, um, there is a again. Th- there is an article published in the New Yorker where Gian Tolentino, Tolentino is employed at by Sarah Stillman. The article is called "The Invisible Army," and is from the June 6, twenty eleven issue. And the subtitle of the article is the for foreign workers on U.S. bases in Iraq and Afghanistan war can be hell. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a few quotes to contextualize this. So she says. So she says the Pentagon's invisible army: more than seventy thousand cooks, cleaners, construction workers, fast food clerks, electricians, and beauticians from the world's poorest countries who service U.S. military logistical contracts. And she says. Uh, you know, while the expansion of private security contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan is well known, armed security personnel for o- account for only 16% of the overall contracting force. The vast majority, more than 60% of the total in Iraq, aren't hired guns but hired hands. She also goes on to say, These workers, primarily from South Asia and Africa, often live in barbed wire compounds on U.S. bases eat at meager chow halls, and host dance parties featuring Nepalese romance ballads and Ugandan church songs. A large number are employed by fly-by-night subcontractors who are financed by the American taxpayer, but who often operate outside the law. And then I'm gonna, I'll read this quote. Um, so, b- many of the 
workers, the actual victims who were interviewed for Stillman's report, recount having been robbed of wages, injured without compensation, subjected to sexual assault, and held in conditions resembling indentured servitude by their sub uh, subcontractor yeah, I mean, bosses. That is, that's what it is. It's indentured servitude. That's not right. an exaggeration at all. Right. You, and you again, owe these people half your check for five years. And some of these things that, again, I want to emphasize, this article is in The New Yorker, Tolentino's place yeah. of employment. So someone, people should fucking know better. Like this they is actually pretty. This is this actually like is pretty embarrassing that like there was a story published in the in the New Yorker in 2011 on this very issue, and their response was to overlook that. Which again, like 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 I said, even if the case of specifically of Gia's family, like, let's say like what she's saying is true and that like the case is unfair, fine. But there is a larger issue that like needs to be talked about and should yes. not be brushed aside. Yeah, well, it's just like for to to I mean, that was the point, and you know, she thought she was good enough at writing to you know write her way out of this, and I guess you know, for all intents and purposes, she succeeded because by heading it off and framing it as oh, it was just this big misunderstanding, and you know, you know, ICE just came after us, you know, you know how us black black and brown people or are afraid of ICE, you know, you know how it is. I mean, she literally made an argument like that, yeah, and it's like. Oh um, no! Like, like if, like if your reaction wasn't like, wait, hold up, wait, what? And yeah. your action was just like, I'm so sorry for you. Like, no, screw you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, you're like, like you're the problem. You're the problem. You're you're the reason why like the left, you know, is completely feckless and just functionless because the people whose job it is to know the truth and t- tell the truth. Just like miss this giant, oh like, yeah, giant huge. thing, you huge, know? And huge they, and underreported, yeah, like vastly underreported. Like there are stories of this, and I, I'm glad that like Esha Legal, I'll, I'll put in show notes Esha Legal's Twitter thread because she posts more articles that basically back up my story and Sarah Stillman's story. That like this is a very serious issue about like basically international labor trap international labor trafficking yeah well that, that... this is this is a product of intentional under imperial underdevelopment i mean right. that's you know after the u.s stopped being a after the philippines stopped being a formal colony then it just did neocolonialism where you know it propped up a bunch of shitty dictators you know up until now and and like while basically remain leaving that country like underdeveloped because there's no it's not profitable for western capital to develop the philippines it's you know it's profitable yeah. to utilize it as a source of cheap labor and raw materials i, I want and that's what happens i i want to um uh double down on a point you said about like you know pointing out that the response from basically kind of like the blue check mafia or whatever you want to call them like the sort yeah. of blue check twitter media class um like their response is very very revealing because this is like a group of people who are expected right. to know better right but what this is a demonstration of that actually is i think very very pervasive and ugly is that like within media like there is a class element like there's a class component yeah. to the media and it, it reflects certain class interests because like look the new yorker like that's a coveted position amongst writers to write for the New Yorker. Like, if I don't you, know why. But... I don't know why either, but like, there's a kind of 
social cachet in status yeah. you get for being a writer at the New Yorker. And I'm sure like a very nice paycheck, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there, there, like amongst right. media people, like there are social circles that intersect with class circles. And that kind of like, like I was saying about socialization amongst black people, there's a kind of socialization that goes on amongst these types of people. And they all know each other. They all talk to each other. And so like that kind of socialization breeds certain interest. And so when one of the members of the groups of that social circle is, um, let's say, offended in some way, people defend them. Because it's not yeah. it's not really – because I think in this case, it's not just of defending Gia, but it's defending the integrity of the social circle of the sort of liberal media New York kind of blue check Twitter class. And so it's like they're more interested in defending the integrity of – that that social status of those media people versus finding the truth and i think like their response that that's what like i found yeah. really illuminating is that it revealed like okay like there's some actual class I, yeah going yeah on. well they actually do know what class solidarity means so <laughs> so now they can't pretend that they don't know you know what we're talking about when we talk about working class solidarity i think that there are two you know phenomena going on there one is that they do know the situation, but they also know that um, their family trees have something, you know, equally distasteful. So they have right. to defend her. Um, right. The second, I think, is that a lot of these people, despite, you know, being considering themselves as public servants, sort of actually loathe the public. And they they despise, they despise, especially like the Twitter hordes or the Tumblr right. hordes. They despise, right. they despise the rabble. They believe themselves to be better. They believe themselves to be literally a better class of person because they have these jobs, you know. And so it is yeah. very much like, um, excuse me, like how could anyone, you know? It's it's like it's like when people believe that like I don't know, like killing a journalist is like worth three lives of a regular person or something. Like it's it's kind of it's there's just this mentality that it's like I am in. I am an extra person. I am more than one person. I am more important than the regular person because I consider myself to be a journalist. And all, yeah, and um, I also think like to kind of extrapolate a little bit further. Um, I also think like that's why a lot of those people don't like Chapel Trap House, like because I like because yeah. I think like there's some real media envy amongst those people against Chapel Trap House because like Chapel Trap House like you know uh I mean th look they make a lot of money on Patreon like but it's largely their operations largely like grassroots like I don't think as far as I know they're not no. taking like coke money you know what I mean like no. they're not taking like money I, I mean, from I slave mean, owners and shit popularity was like familiarity within those circles but very much they because they don't even pretend to be journalists then they can right. like call the game out for what it is and that's what makes people mad right and exactly is that, is that like yeah they can they can just say the thing that journal that these you know self-appointed journalists can't say because they're so busy upholding their you know little labor their little guild or whatever that yeah. they yeah it gets in the way of the truth and also and also like chapel trap house and i think similar podcast um are proving like in terms of a financial model they're they're 
equally as um, successful, quote unquote, in terms of like being a um, a funded media apparatus um, that's independent of like the conventional media institutions and the in the conventional media class interests. So like because like you know in terms of like how like the sort of left podcast ecosystem works because it is largely grassroots, and you know we could talk about like okay maybe like yeah like non-white podcasters make less money than like white podcasters yeah true but but structurally for the most part like their funding sources it's not like the right way where like it's all yeah. connected to, like fucking oil money and like coke money and all this evil shit in the both kinds the, of coke money right and liberals is like a lot of like weird non-profit sector money foundation money tech money shit like that it's like both sides like liberals and conservative represent different sets of like class interest in in terms yeah. of the larger economy and like left media is like okay we're we're gonna basically create like a, a sort of media ecosystem that's independent of those class interests which gives them a a a level of freedom to basically call the shit for what it is and i think like when you know they get mad at like the sort of left twitter rabble it's like yeah like we can kind of say shit for what it is without having to uh, kiss those kinds kiss the ass of those kinds of class interests um and i think like that's part of like the the real envy and and, and just hatred that like a lot of these like sort of liberal blue yeah. checks have for left twitter yeah whenever they have to acknowledge its existence i mean yeah they, they'd rather pretend it doesn't well i think we've got most of what's been grinding our gears out for tonight <laughs> yeah yeah uh yeah we went from fucking biden and police shit to um media class interests <laughs> yeah um, it's uh i mean yeah let's, we don't have to i mean we can talk about I don't know. I mean, it's good to get off of quarantine, though. Yeah, I going back to work now, and the whole situation is fucked. Um, you know, like, so we're supposed to be open, but we can't have inside seating. So, it's, you know, we yeah. have, like, actually... Yeah, it's... Well, yeah, in Maine, for some reason, you can only... Restaurants can only have outdoor seating, which we have enough outdoor seating that we might be okay, but... Most places only have, like, two or three tables. That's screwed. The other fucked up thing is that the Department of Labor sent out this mass email saying that, quote, unquote, because of unemployment insurance fraud, like, everyone's payment this week is getting pushed back two days, and they're reinstituting the wait period and actually making it longer for new claims. So, I mean, that, I mean, they very much use, like, this whole identity theft thing as an excuse, but... Yeah, I mean, they like the reason everything's opening back up is to get everyone off unemployment. And that's more important than I mean, yeah, like that figure is more important than the economy and certainly more important than public health. So I don't know how any of this is going to work um, because pe pe people will be open, but they can't actually do business. So I right. don't, it's good. I mean, shit's going to get real dumb next month as far as I can tell. Oh, I don't damn. know. So, yeah, that's that's the real world and not I, I mean, it's all the real world and it's all stupid. Um. Yeah, I like. Oh, yeah. When it comes to teaching, it's like uh, I'm kind of looking for like online teaching jobs because that seems to be the way of the future now because it's unsafe to. I mean, like, I, I think it's very, very fucking unsafe to 
open up school during a fucking pandemic um but it's like it's like switching from uh okay you already learned how to like teach you know in person but like now you have to learn how to teach online and through a computer it's like oh great another skill i have to learn and i was not prepared for that um yeah like the job market and reality of capitalism is very very weird during this pandemic and it's Mm -hmm. like no one really i feel like a lot of people just don't know what the fuck to do (laughs) well well, yeah nobody nobody from the top down i mean the announcement came from the governor like today and yeah everyone's like planning to open up on monday and it's just like yeah now everyone's mad it's like you know what fine i don't even i i'm you know it makes me sympathetic to the republicans that hate the democratic governor so all things just stupid it's like like nobody nobody has any real uh everyone's just in cya mode so nobody's actually there there was like a brief period where there's like yeah the heroic governor is gonna take charge and yeah that's nobody's doing that anymore everyone's everyone's covering their own ass you know and not doing a very good job of it so we're really i don't i don't want to say we're bungling this but i don't know what else to say we we really are going about this whole thing this stupidest way you could possibly do it there's no way you could do it any dumber so yeah i mean um, that's that's the uh i mean you know because america is hyper capitalist and doesn't believe in any form of centralized government response to anything like yeah this is a result it's like a sort of it's like a chicken running with his head cut off like it's we're just sort of winging it not knowing what the fuck to do and uh well people yeah well you know winging it's gotten america this far but (laughs) it's gonna continue working so yeah uh yeah stay safe uh you know stay uh Try, try not to be too broke, you know, and uh, try not to get too down. It was a really nice day today, you know. I enjoyed walking around. It was, um, but yeah, life is life. Life is is very strange. Very very strange. Um, yeah, that concludes this episode. Um, it's a free episode, and you know, if you like this episode, um. You know, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash hours, $5 a month. You get bonus content. Um, you know, for those of you who follow us on SoundCloud and Spotify, um, yeah, check us out and uh, support, you know, independent black media projects. Um, if you like this stuff and you subscribe, it, it helps us. It helps us keep this shit going. Um, yeah. Anyway, peace. Yeah.